0: and welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host John Sillis and on this week's episode I'm excited to be joined by Daniel Cooper. Dan is an 18-year veteran of Australian Special Operations with extensive experience of combat operations throughout his career. Dan also has a parallel passion for human performance with academic knowledge coupled with practical experience developing human performance programs for special operations and later within elite performance sport. He is now focused on research and evidence-based practice for developing optimal performance behaviors to maximize accurate information processing, response selection, and stress resilience in high-consequence, complex, and adaptive environments. Dan is also an avid practitioner in testing his physical and mental limits through participation in various competitions as well as the world's toughest adventure races and ultimate endurance events. In this episode, Dan talks about his military career and his choice to join the Special Air Service, the physical and psychological demands of Special Forces selection, his interest in human performance and his role in developing a performance program in Special Forces, his transition to professional sport and his work with the Queensland Reds, his involvement in adventure racing and his preparation for the Edita Road thousand mile trail race, and his current PhD research looking at the impact of anxiety on performance. Afternoon, Dan. Welcome to the podcast, bud. Yeah, man, it's good to be on. Um, thanks for having me on, actually. No worries, mate. Thank you very much for taking the time. Um, obviously, have been following your work for a little while now, uh, some stuff you've been putting up on YouTube, as well as your LinkedIn account, and then uh, following on from our podcast with Jeremy Robinson, he highly recommend I sit down and have a chat with you, just regarding some of your background and the research you're currently doing. With regards to uh, anyone who may not be familiar with you and your work, can you just give us a little bit of an overview of, you
1: know, who you are and what you've done with your career so far. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, I'm um, born and bred in Australia. Um, still think so joined the Australian Army when I was around about 21. Uh, so I spent three years with the paratroopers there or within the infantry. Um, did that for um, about three years. Yet. went to Timor while I was there on a, a deployment. Came back, did selection for our special forces here. I uh, was successful on my first go for that. And then I spent uh, around about 17 to 18 years within that unit, um, sort of back and forth, deploying into the Middle East uh, and a few sort of areas around there. During that period of time, I started doing a uh, Bachelor's of Sports Science. So we were raising our own human performance programs. So I started doing an undergrad there. Uh, that followed then into a Master's of Strength and Conditioning, mm-hmm. uh, which followed into a Master's of Research, which looked at um, sort of around the psychobiological theory of fatigue. So it looks at the impact of cognitive and physiological factors for fatigue and a lot around perception of effort uh, and how you can change your power outputs at the same perceived work rates. Uh, And that sort of was about the same time that I transitioned out of the military uh, into high performance sport here. So I took a job with one of our super rugby teams for a year and a half. We had a bit of a change in our family there. So my wife went into full-time work, so I stepped back to look after our kids. And on the back of that, I picked up a PhD scholarship, which I'm working on now. So um, pretty much just doing full-time scholarship. And then just sort of getting a little bit of that information out here and there, playing around with some of that YouTube stuff, playing around with social media, that sort of stuff, just looking at, you know, it's an easy way to get good information out there. um, So in a brief sort of synopsis, that's kind of the last 25 years or 24 years.
0: Nice, nice. So what was it that originally uh, drew you to uh, enlisting within the army, like obviously going within the the, the paratroopers who were sitting there and then eventually making the move to Special Forces?
1: Yeah, I guess I was always interested in it. So, um, like I was interested in the British SAS because there wasn't much known about the Australian at the time. There was a lot mm-hmm. more coming for Britain because uh, obviously they'd sort of hit the media a few years earlier, a little bit earlier. Um, and it just intrigued me, just the fact that, you know, there was people like that out there and the possibility of doing that, I thought was presented as a really good challenge. Um, so, you know, I'm sort of um, quite happy to take on challenge uh, or sort of confront some of the fears that I've got, so, which was one of the reasons I went airborne, was around fear of heights. Uh, and then I sort of thought, you know, I don't know if I've got what it takes to get into one of these units, um, but I'm not going to get to the end and find out if I do or I don't sort of thing. So I thought I'll take it on. Um, and then just see what comes from there. And then, yeah, it sort of turned out all right for me in the end. Um, but yeah, I don't know, like it's really difficult to narrow down what the true motivation is. Um, but I guess it's just intrigue around whether I had the capacity to do it. And then if I could work within those environments, and then how I would go sort of in the ultimate test when you're on deployment type of thing.
0: Yeah. And I mean, over in Australia, it's the, you've got the two special forces uh, regiments doing, you? you've got the SAS and you've got the commando. Uh, yeah, over? that's correct. Yeah. Okay. So, was there ever a toss-up between the two, or was it always going to be just SS for you?
1: Or um, I was actually looking at going through the Commandos um, as a stepping stone sort of thing, and I think that was more around just my age at the time was sort of the safer option was to progressively go for you know the harder of the two units, uh, and the Commandos were quite new at that point in time. Uh, but when I was going through this early selection process or the screening, one of the senior guys from SAS, approached me and asked me why I wasn't going to go all out and just put in for the full SAS selection. Uh, and I sort of said, oh, I just wasn't certain whether I could get there just yet. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to, that next level of preparation. Then uh, he pretty much just said, if I put you on it, are you going to do it? And I said, yes. And off I went. That's
0: nice, nice, And what, what's the, uh, the selection process like with regards to the Australian SAS? There's more and more here in the UK, like uh, coverage of individual elements would typically face for guys who are going through SS and SBS selection. Most notably um, would be the, the Hills phase of like down in Wales and the Brecon Beacons of guys doing uh, timed and heavy marches over, you know, undulating terrain through the, the, the hilly terrain of Wales. What's it look like for you guys over in Australia, if you can dip into that a little bit for us.
1: Yeah, well, I still like to uh, have a little bit of mystique around it. Um, in saying that there is a documentary that was released a few years ago, I think called In Search for Warriors. Um, but it sort of, it has some similarities, but then some subtle differences in it. So the actual components of it are fairly stable from year to year. So there's periods there where you tested in a team environment, you test tested on your own, and then you sort of test it under high levels of duress, fatigue, uh, without eating, sleep deprivation, these sort of things. Um, but the actual contents and structure within it changes from year to year. So when I did it, the part where you tested on your own was done sort of down along the creek, which just had sort of um, some sort of high features either side of it. And we just went through sort of quite thick terrain for a Mm -hmm. couple of days. We didn't cover a lot of distance, but the whole time sort of fighting against sort of not quite jungle, but sort of fairly thick terrain. And then other years, they might sort of go into more of a sand dune environment and they might go down into some of the ranges we've got here. So they kind of do vary it around a little bit. So it's always different. Um, So a lot of times from year to year, no one's ever really done exactly the same selection course. Um, but the, you pretty much covered the exact same things, just in a different environment a slightly different
0: environment. Okay, okay. And I mean, with regards to selection, obviously there's a, there's a huge physical component there that's very demanding, looking to push guys to their their physical limits. But also, we know there's a massive psychological element to that. They want to you, you know guys who can hit that wall or that limit and keep pushing on. Um, what are some of the stuff? Was there any strategies you utilize to help yourself prepare from a psychological standpoint to cope with those physical, those mental demands?
1: Yeah, I knew it was going to be mostly mental going in. So I kind of understood if I had the basic level of fitness to see me get through it or pass the initial test and get through it, then it just came down to my attitude and sort of whether I wanted to make the choice to leave or not. Um, So the strategies and I've kind of always used a very similar strategy and it's very much what I use today when I do a lot of my extreme racing or extreme endurance stuff um, is I just work for short periods or focus on short periods. So when I first get there, I'm not too concerned about the fact that it's sort of 17 or 19 days or whatever it is Um, because if you think long term like that that's a long time to be under those sort of conditions so for me it's just i'll just go until this activity ends and then there's a short break and i'll go until the next activity ends and i'll just keep getting through small chunks until i can get a couple hours sleep that night and then you know if that's interrupted so be it then just sort of keep focusing on just finishing the task at hand and then sort of you always get a short break and then you sort of recover a little bit and off you go um you sort of once you get to the end, you start to get very focused on getting to the end. Mm -hmm. So that sort of dragged out a little bit, but I've always found, you know, if you can sort of maintain your focus on just meeting those short goals, then it's a lot easier. So I always chunk things like that. Um, So I found that to be a fairly good strategy. Uh, And as far as I was concerned, I was going to get to the end um, unless that choice was made for me. Uh, So, you know, like I wasn't going to withdraw, I was going to get to the end. And if I didn't, show what they needed to see, then that's fine. I could live with that. Um, so otherwise they had to pull me off or I had to get injured and get stretched off. Uh, and that seems to be a very common attitude with a lot of the guys that get to the end. that They just sort of got that mindset that they will get there and then they'll take it from there see what happens at that point.
0: Okay, cool. I mean, you're saying there about uh, the mental preparation of chunking things up. Is that something you've always had with regards to, like your output into athletics and stuff, or is that something you developed over time as well to start looking at it as small, more manageable goals rather than looking at things in the bigger picture?
1: Yeah, I think it's something I've always had. Um, it probably came about when I was a young teenager, sort of thing. So I lived sort of semi-rural uh, at the foothills of our mountains, And although really they're not big mountains; they're big enough when you're young. Uh, and I used to ride my bike around a lot. Sort of thing. So as I'd be riding up these hills, I'd just focus on getting to the next short peak and then from there I'll go to the next one, that sort of thing. So it's kind of something I just, I think, learned somewhat through the environment I was in, but there's probably some other factors going on that I wasn't aware of around exposure, who I was sort of uh, around at the time, that sort of thing. Um, so there's a fair number of influential people in my early years who were sort of quite resilient uh, and had really good attitudes about things. But I think a lot of it just came down to you know, just developing a strategy when I was younger, just sort of through getting out there and doing stuff.
0: Fair enough. Mate. Fair enough. And I mean, you you talked about um, just when you were giving us your overview about how you went away and you did your your bachelor's and then later your masters um, within uh, sports science and then strength and conditioning there as well. What was it that got you really interested in the, the human performance training side of things?
1: um you always knew that the job we were doing um, there was a, a heavy underlying physical ability um so i was always aware that the fitter i could get the easier the job would be it didn't necessarily make or wasn't going to necessarily make me good at the job it was just going to make a lot of things easier so then i could focus on other things that were going to improve what i was doing uh, and i knew the fitter you got the less fatigue so the better you are carrying out these tasks you know when you haven't slept when you haven't eaten these sort of things uh, and at the time there was sort of there was a shortage of information out there. So this was sort of before fitness started to become really popular and accessible on the internet. So you sort of talking, you know, mid two thousands when I started looking at it or sort of 2005, 2006, um, I think it was around the, time, the same time, sort of these functional programs started coming out, that sort of thing. Um, and then I, don't know, I was just interested in what sport was doing, like how are they preparing these Olympic athletes, how are team sports preparing these sort of things, you know, what are they doing? that we could be doing because we're getting a lot of injuries. I just, I don't know. I thought there was a better way to do things. Um, So I just sort of went out, started investigating things. And you know, the more you look, the more you sort of start to realize what's out there. Um, And the other side of it was I had a real interest in how I could get better. And then plus how we could get the unit better. So I came up with a proposal where I'd go do it and bring that stuff back in. And we could sort of start to develop uh, a human performance program there in line with some things a few other people were doing around the same sort of area,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and that sort of interest just grew really.
0: And uh, how far into your career was it with the regiment that you decided to go and make that move and go do uh, so the uh, Yeah,
1: so it was about nine or ten years in, um, sort of thing. So I'd been there a while, like I wasn't one year in, then decided you know I need to start adding volume to my work, I, um, sort of thing. So it was still a fairly busy time, but at that stage, I didn't, I had work, I had my wife. And then I had time to study sort of thing outside of that, uh, which was still a pretty big workload. Um, but yeah, I'd been around for a while and I would got reasonably competent in what I was doing sort of yeah. thing before I started adding other sort of complexities into it.
0: Nice. And I mean, with regards to, you know, you went away, you got this knowledge, you brought back into the regiment and started uh, playing around some of the trend modalities around it. What was, your, what was your trend philosophy around that? You know, what was some of the things you tried to implement early on? Uh, into that to try and bring down those injury uh, numbers in the guys.
1: Yeah, so traditionally in the Australian Army, uh, and it's probably similar to a lot of armies, they do a lot of running. So, like if you've got large groups, it's easy to run. It's easy to do a lot of body weight work, work, these sort of things, um, which is fine. When you that's all you do, you get a lot of monotony. So you start yeah. a lot of overuse in these areas, these sort of things. Uh, and we're always on our feet in these roles, always carrying load. So when I started looking at it. Uh, the first thing I did was just try and get as much information as I could to try and drive an understanding of where we could make the, or sort of triage our program so we could make the best improvements early. Uh, and it just came down to reducing the volume of a lot of stuff we were doing. Um, looking at okay, well, how much work we're we doing, how much recovery are we getting and what's appropriate lo- volume loading in that space. Um, you know, cause you're talking about quite high occupational loads.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So a lot of it just came down early on to try and, change the mindset more hard work isn't necessarily better that yeah we're doing the hard work but now we need the space to recover from that so it's starting to implement more recovery type of stuff
0: nice and with regards to that then for the the program itself were you just overseeing that completely and and running that program or do you have a couple of guys under you to help implement that program across the regiment
1: yeah, I was sort of working with the PDIs that were there. So they've got the physical training instructors, um, who sort of, I think they're kind of above a personal trainer sort of thing here. Um, so they're really efficient at running large group sessions, um, but they don't do the same amount of, or they don't have the same acad- academic understanding as what you'd get if you did you know, three years of university. Um, so I was working with them and then just trying to look at how I could work utilising their experience and the knowledge I was getting and where we could start sort of making the best improvements. So um, I sort of did it for a couple of years, sort of probably 70% dedicated to it. And then it was back into sort of green roll stuff um, just around some of the positions I had and what the unit required. Uh, so the human performance thing was more of like a, a 20 to 30% type of thing for me. Um, so like it was never truly dedicated for a long period.
0: And then with regards to that, then you, you finished up your career with the regiment and then you decided to make that move into pro sport. So how yeah. did that come about for you? Um, was it uh, something you'd always had on your radar? You wanted to go into pro sport or not?
1: Yeah, I was definitely interested in it. Um, I guess it's one of those things where the grass always looks greener somewhere else. So, um, you know, until you go and have a look at something you don't know. So I was definitely interested in, how sport worked. Um, and I was getting to a point where I'd pretty much done just over 20 years in defence. So it was about time to start looking at something else. Uh, and I didn't want to be away too much because we started having a young family. So I wanted something with a, a little bit more stability around the home. Um, and an opportunity just came up because uh, I'd been developing networks over the years and looking at different programs. And then it's sort of um, just an opportunity came up. We're able to return to part of Australia where my wife was born so we thought okay we'll uh, take leave from work and put in a few things where I could get that time away from work um, to give me a good look at it if it wasn't something I like I could go back or we could stay here Um, so we ended up staying here uh, and it was interesting like sport was really good I enjoyed it but coming from the tactical side of things I think personally that's kind of where I prefer sort of things that's just a personal preference
0: for that environment And when you made the the move over to the Reds, was it just the like the, the the guys senior team you were working with, or did you have any input into the academy structure as well?
1: Uh yeah. So it was mostly just the senior team. Uh, so the academy had its own staff, and we worked with them a little bit. Um, but you sort of you're so busy in those environments because uh, we sort of have minimal staff. But mm-hmm. you know, you have your discussions and your chats and these sort of things. But it's really hard to dedicate too much time in that. So it was mostly just the playing group and then the non-23 guys that were around that. Um, and I dealt more so with the rehab guys and the non-playing squad and the non-travel squad.
0: Nice, and I mean, with regards to obviously coming into your background, uh, did you, you slot just straight into more of the traditional s role or were, did the, the Reds try and harness any of your experience from the tactical side to bring into that program as well?
1: Yeah, it was mostly more so the S&C side of things. And then there was just sort of bringing in little components to see what we could change, what we couldn't, these sort of things. Um, Sort of... It can be... Sport can be a difficult environment like that sometimes because the players have got so much work on that you're sort of just chipping away at little things. um, Sort of things. I was just trying to grab opportunities where I could just to sort of get them thinking about some different concepts and these sort of things. Um, I think just some observations I've made over the years... Is that within a lot of sport, they don't generally think sort of in large scale strategy or how you do your tactical decisions on the field within the strategy. sort of, um, you know, coming from a military background, sort of utilize or looking at the field as sort of terrain and then what terrain I want to dominate and how I sort of go around maneuvering to get that. You sort of have a completely different perspective, um, which I think in sport is one of the things that most programs kind of lack. So I worked around that a little bit. Um, sort of just trying to get them to think like an 80 minute game and how they want to control the field for that um, sort of thing. So focus a little bit on that a little bit around the mindset, these sort of things. Um, but very much a different group of people from what I'd previously been working in. Mm-hmm. So completely different problem sets. Uh, and to be honest, a lot of that was outside of my scope. So I didn't delve too much into that. I just sort of gave them some little stuff about what sort of works within the environment I came from for maintaining that sort of, Intense focus that you
0: often see there. So, and how how did you approach that? Was that just sitting down with the the technical coaching staff and discussing the options around that that they could implement, or what did you present at all to the team in regards to like you know dominating and holding down that field of play for the tactical side of things?
1: Yeah, it was a bit of both. um So sort of talk to the staff around you know some different ways of looking at things, a little bit around some of the way. Um, we'd analyse things both for our strengths and weaknesses and the opposition strengths and weaknesses and sort of look at what can be exploited you know what do we need to worry about being exploited by them um, and that sort of stuff you know and they've got their well they have their own analyst that looks at a lot of other things so I sort of would talk to him a little bit here and there and then um, sort of some dedicated presentations to the team as a whole just changing the way that they think about sort of things a little bit Um, you know so if things get really tough it's it's easy to go into survival where it's much harder to sort of think about, okay, well, I've got to thrive in this environment. How do I actually grow from this challenge? Uh, So sort of talk around a few of those sort of things. Uh, And then just a lot of small one-on-one conversations with guys um, to sort of, in the role I was in, you're in the locker room a lot. You're hanging out with the guys a lot, these sort of things. So it's just sort of constant small exposures and constant themes and these sort of things. Um, Because when you're looking at behaviour change, you're not going to get it from a presentation. You're not going to get it from one-off. You know, it's a a constant, deliberate sort of practice or strategy that you're changing these behaviours, so there's a lot around
0: that. And with regards to going from the the military into pro-sport, how did you find uh, just switching from one environment to the other, And like the the team cultures, obviously the team culture within Special Forces versus the team culture in pro-sport, was there a lot of similarities within that, was there a lot of uh, disparity as well?
1: Yeah, there is. Um, that was one of the things that made it quite easy because you know, a lot of people talk about the difficulty in transitioning out of such a, a, a similar environment to what I was in. Um, and I kind of almost just went laterally across into a very similar environment. So the team itself, um, really good playing group and they're fairly young, so they're sort of uh, fairly humbled guys. There was no big egos. Uh, Australian sport doesn't have these real high-paid stars. Um, you know, Australian, or especially rugby, just can't afford them for one reason. Um mm-hmm. It's sort of there's not a big disparity between your bottom level guys and your top level guys so you're not really dealing with guys turning up in ferraris and parking in the coach's spot these sort of things so okay. um <laughs> a very easy group to work with in that regard um and half of them are sort of country guys have so they're more relaxed uh, so i sort of found it that side of things was really easy and the coaching staff we had were really good so the transition was quite easy in that respect um, as far as the focus and dedication goes there's obviously some differences there you know because a win or a loss is just a win or a loss where in tactical environments you know a loss is sort of there's high consequence for a loss or for a poor performance um so you're just not going to get that level of focus outside of that environment uh and to be honest i don't really think you're going to achieve it um and i think it has its own implications outside of that anyway sort of thing so there was a lot of similarities Sort of a few differences, but you know, I found it quite easy to go across and a really enjoyable place to work.
0: Cool. cool. Now, one of the big things I'm chatting about is just um, from what I've seen through social media on you is just your your adventure racing that you're involved in quite heavily now. How, how did that come about? How did you even get involved with in that stuff? Um,
1: yeah, I don't know. I couldn't give you the precise start to it. I think it just came around conversations when we were away. Um, with sort of if you're away for too long with people, you just start talking about all sorts of random stuff. Um, And we're sort of throwing out some small challenges, nothing ridiculous. Like when I was in Timor with the regular army, I've seen some really weird challenges and these sort of things, but this was kind of a little bit um, rational. And we're talking about sort of long races and seeing whether we could do it. Uh, And the marathon to Salves came up Uh and it kind of intrigued me. I was interested in it, but when I looked at it at that time, logistically, it would have been really difficult. And I think to get onto it, would have been quite difficult. So I kind of just ignored it. And then a similar race came up in Australia from a company that does very similar races. I think it's the Racing the Planet. They do four deserts. And then they do like a traveling race every now and then. Uh, And one was in Western Australia where I was. So I did that. Uh, So that was sort of the, I think, a marathon a day over five days or six days, whatever it is. Um, But they had to change it around a little bit just because of the terrain we were traveling in. And then from there, I sort of got fairly interested in it from that point. Uh, and then it was more just guys coming in, putting articles down or races, going, Oh, why don't you try this, why don't you try that? I think they're just baiting me, to be honest, to see what I'd go for and what I wouldn't. Um and then after a while I sort of got more and more interested in it. And then I did the Yukon Arctic Ultra um, in northern Alaska, or sorry, northern Canada, which was 430 miles. So um, I think it was around about 730 kilometres or something. But the distances vary a little bit from year to year based on, you know, where they cut the trail, these sort of things. Uh, And that took me 10 days. And it was the first time I'd really ventured into sort of these almost Arctic environments. Um, Coming from Australia, you sort of don't get much exposure to that. So when I went in, I was just a little bit hesitant about how it would work out for me. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, after sort of at that stage, probably 15 years of living in the field, you kind of adapt to your conditions and you sort of, you understand what your limitations are and you're a little bit sort of safer. Uh, I've completed that and then the next longest one I could find was the full Iditarod that they run in Alaska, which follows the dog sled route. Um, But to do the 1,000 mile, you've got to complete the 350 mile to qualify, which I completed that uh, in March this year. So I'm looking to go back February or the end of February next year to to take on the 1,000 mile, uh, dependent on borders and international travel at the moment. Um, But sort of, it'll be a tough race and I'm, Still in that point where it's kind of exciting and novel. Uh, in a couple of months, I'll start to realize the sort of just the enormous um, challenge that faces or lays in front of me, and then I'll sort of start to sink in when I get there. And then you sort of get these pre race jitters and then once you go, you're off and it's fine. Um, but yeah, definitely a big task. I'm sort of looking through the planning of how I go about that, what sort of strategy I'm going to use, what equipment I need, um, sort of thing. So just trying to work out the details around that and what that looks like for me.
0: Nice, yeah. I mean, obviously, for such extreme races of long duration stuff as well, how much kit are you carrying with you? Because I think you've got to be self-sufficient throughout most of the, the race. With Is there probably like check-in points, is there, just to make sure you're staying up on uh, track for time and stuff?
1: Yeah, so there's checkpoints. Um, early on, they're not too far apart. They're sort of um, 30 to 40 miles apart. Uh, and then as you go across the range into the interior, they start to spread out, and then they're sort of... 100 200 miles apart at some points. Uh, some of them are just tents put up sort of in specific areas, others are villages that you go um, into. I think next year it's likely to be the outskirts of the village because I don't want um, travelers coming into the villages next year just because of the concerns around you know, disease transmission. Yeah, I think so. Um, but yeah, it's a checkpoint there and then there's sort of a fresh feed there. There's a place to sleep. You know, it might be an outside place to sleep with a small tent supporting it sort of thing, but there's a bit of a fire there. There's some warmth. Um, mm-hmm. It's better than just flattening out some snow on the side of the trail and going to sleep for a couple of hours. Uh, so it is, but yeah, you sort of got to carry enough food for three to four days at any one point. And then you've got all your cold gear, generally a little bit of um, backup stuff in case you get wet. So you have got your sleeping bag, um, or your cooking gear, so you can melt water. These sort of things, a bit of like the minimal survival gear. Um, last time I didn't take a tent. I just used sort of a Gore-Tex sleeping bag liner. Uh, sort of summing up whether I want to take a very small tent this year, because uh, if you sort of get caught in a blizzard for two days, then you know a Gore-Tex sleeping bag is going to be sort of probably a little bit too small.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so I was sort of weighing up. You know, what do you take? What do you don't take? Although the sled slides across the ground pretty well, it's, you know, every 500 grams or half a kilo matters. So, you know, you take six things that you don't really need and it starts to add up really fast. So, you know, you sort of take a bit of equipment, but almost the bare essentials.
0: And with regards to obviously being in colder environments, how do you find the acclimation, you know, going from Australia to these colder environments? And how do you, how do you prep for that? Obviously being (laughs) in such a nice warm place that you are.
1: Uh, um, everyone kind of laughs at that one. So, uh, so yeah, because you come out of here almost in the peak of summer. So, um, like Brisbane will get to the low forties, but the humidity is almost one hundred percent. Like it gets really humid here. Yeah. So you go from there, and then when I went to Alaska this year, to Anchorage to begin with, I think it was around minus fifteen, minus sixteen Celsius when I first got there. So you're talking sort of 50, 55 degree temperature differential. Um, so I'll go a little bit early. And then I just go out early in the morning, just do sort of intermittent exposures sort of on and off into the cold, just to sort of try and get as much as I can before it's a problem. Then I get sort of just warm enough to go back out and then just sort of, or I'll walk around and just sort of take some layers off
0: mm-hmm.
1: to a point where I'm cold and then put some layers on that sort of thing. And then uh, when I was there this year, I still had some stuff to, or some equipment to buy. So I was just walking around all day getting equipment, just sort of trying to get as much exposure as I can get sort of without overdoing it um and that seemed to work over about a week i was trying to go i was going to try and do some ice baths these sort of things before i go this year for a couple of weeks beforehand just to take that edge off it um because that sort of cold water immersion can help with the temperature change um just all little things but the reality is it's like i can't completely do it so i just mm-hmm. need to be really cautious of how much i expose sort of my skin to the temperatures and those sort of things so um, you know, if, when I go to get out of bed, it's a very deliberate action. So I know where everything is. I know what I need to do, the order it needs to happen. And then when I make the decision to get out of the sleeping bag, then mm-hmm. it's just, everything happens as fast as I can. So I can get moving quickly to get that heat going. Uh, and then when you stop, probably about five to 10 minutes before you stop, you start going through your head. Okay, well, where is everything? What do I need to do? So you just start going through that mental rehearsal. Oh, I'm going to stop up here. I need to get everything done as quick as I can. You know, if I'm going to, melt snow for water then i need to know exactly what i'm going to do when i'm going to do all that this sort of thing you go along find the right spot where you can get that done as quick as you can so um as soon as you take those gloves off you sort of the clock starts ticking
0: i mean with regards to obviously all the prep that goes into it as well like from uh, travel arrangements again your kit store and everything like that and obviously you talk about again uh, acclimate to the the environment there as well How far out from like a race do you start your physical prep work for to get ready? You know, what does the program look like? Do you you break it down into blocks, you know, so you peak come race time? Or is it like you just have your general training straight through?
1: Um, Yeah, I'd almost say that my preparation has not stopped since I was about 18. I was also an avid rugby league player when I was younger. Uh, My initial ambition was to play pro sport with the rest of the rugby league players I was with. the reality is it's such a, a low number of people that go through that. Um, but i would always been active with that ambition. Then when I joined the military, you get dedicated time to train there. So, you know, for 20 years, I had a couple of hours every morning, which were dedicated, um, but more for the most part every morning, um, sort of work, not getting involved too much. Um, so where, you know, you, you can go do your training, these sort of things. And then I've always been active in my own time. So since I've left, I've still trained pretty much, um, every day so since I went to university obviously my training's evolved a lot more from what it was So early days it was a lot of running a lot of bodybuilding those sort of things because so that's just the information that was available uh, and then it sort of went into a little bit more of like a crossfit style functional fitness high intensity sort of training um, the reality was in the environment I was in you just can't maintain those sort of workouts regularly and it just sort of shoulders were breaking down knees are breaking down these sort of things so um, I'd be more conservative and now it's Very much a structured program where I'll keep sort of a fairly good base of all-round skills, all-round capacity, as well as I can. Obviously, as you age, you start to sort of need to be more aware of your recovery, you know, just realistically what you are capable of, these sort of things. Uh, And then based on the event I want to do, then I'll start to specify a little bit more around those attributes. Um, So probably mid last year, I started doing a lot more endurance work uh, and part of my lead-up was doing a 24-hour obstacle course race, just to sort of like, you know, just an event for a big volume to sort of see where I was at and then moved off. So it was a lot more endurance work. Um, my strength sort of went from less maximal strength stuff, more strength endurance. I did the race this year, so that sort of gave me a really good base to work from. And then coming from that, uh, I actually noticed a decent jump in work capacity and endurance once the fatigue from that race has settled. So it took a couple of weeks for that fatigue to wash off. Um, but then I was actually capable of sort of more lower end work or lower intensity work. Um, so it's sort of just been a a matter of building that out and then just making sure I'm doing enough strength work to kind of maintain the strength I had as best I could. Um, so I don't want to lose my strength stuff. So I still sort of um, like to compete in sort of the CrossFit open, some of the CrossFit Masters type stuff here um, just because I Enjoy that type of competition here and there if there's something a little bit different. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of sort of structured programming around that with a lot of dedicated recovery in there. And then pre-event, I'll sort of start tapering probably maybe three weeks out because uh, I will build up a lot of fatigue by that time. So, I'll sort of look yeah. at three weeks out. That allows for a bit of travel, allows for a bit of time there. Uh, and the reality is I'm not going to the Olympics. So, you know, if I get the taper slightly wrong, it doesn't matter. You know, yeah. it's not that sort of two-week dedicated table where I'm looking for that 3% increase, you know. So, I just want to wash off fatigue because there's a lot of that coming. So,
0: And, I mean, with regards to the training then, like what, what's your training frequency right now within the, the, the week? You know, do you run off a seven-day or a ten-day uh, training template? And, like, what does your recovery look like within that, uh, obviously, offset some of that fatigue you're building up?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I sort of did um, – I kind of have, we'll have a midweek recovery day. So I'll sort of do Monday, Tuesday and then recovery and then three days on the back of that, or I'll do three days recovery and then two days. Sunday's always recovery. Uh, that's always family day recovery, that sort of thing. So I'll never go into that day. Um, and initially I was doing two day or two sessions a day, um, for probably about almost two blocks until I start to realize that that fatigue was accumulating too much. And so then I dropped it off. Um, did my unload week came out and then I'll sort of fluctuate my weeks a little bit around where they sit within the blocks. So I'll kind of do um, my first week will probably be more sort of eight to nine sessions spaced mm-hmm. out through those sort of five days with that um, d- uh, day of rest sort of midway in there. And then I'll sort of drop the sessions down a little bit from there. So recovery week, will be back to sort of five sessions um, sort of things. So I'll, Kind of play down, play, well, I'll do a lot of playing around to be honest with it just to see how I respond to certain things. So um, at the moment it's kind of a pretty standard week to week where I rotate the exercises from um, over that sort of five days where I played around before with sort of uh, like a 10 or 14 day rotation of exercises where it'll sort of be two, two week blocks within that four weeks. Um, and I sort of just will mix it up based on life factors, where I'm at, what I want to achieve, these sort of things. Uh, but at the moment, it'll be fairly consistent with my running. So if I'm going to reduce something, it's more so reducing strength sessions at the moment than my running. So I want to keep my sort of volume on legs up at the moment and then slowly build that towards a race. So I think so I'm going to, if I'm going to be on my legs for about 18 hours a day, then I just need to get some work done now.
0: Yeah. So with regards to the running then, what's your, what's your volume looking like per session or per week you're trying to accumulate within that?
1: Yeah, so I'll do two longer runs. Um, they'll be anywhere between sort of 10 and 15 kilometres and I'll build that out to sort of some 20s and then I'll probably drop down to one run, but that might be a 30, 40 a lot of them are sort of trail runs uh, sort of thing. So probably uh, I just prefer trail running and I think it's a little bit better for what I want to do anyway. Uh, and then I'll sort of mix in that probably two interval sessions or one interval session based on you know how much volume I'm doing in the sort of lower... Intensity, and then I'll manipulate my high intensity running around that. So, the intervals are more sort of just trying to get extra volume in, but without the time requirement for long distance running. So, obviously, endurance running takes up a lot of your time. So, you know, when you've got other commitments, you just can't really devote that amount of time to it. Uh, and I kind of find once I get over a certain point, like if I get up around fifty k's a week or forty k's a week, then I just start to deteriorate a little bit. So, um, you know, if I can't get the volume, then I'll try and get a little bit more higher quality work or speed work in there just so that it bumps it up a little bit extra um reality is I, I can't train for you know 30 days of traveling 50 kilometers a day over 18 hours so you know I'll, I'll decrease that gap
0: as much as i can and then
1: just pay the piper so to speak when the time comes yeah, but, yeah.
0: that's interesting there i mean not only are you you know, training hard to get yourself ready, but you've also got other commitments outside of physical activity and training because obviously you're currently doing your your PhD. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit around how that came about for you and whereabouts you're doing your PhD?
1: Yeah, so um, years ago on selection, like we sort of mentioned before, uh, I noticed that, like, just I was collecting a lot of the physical data, but the physical data doesn't really tell you much about who's going to be there at the end. It's sort of, they pass the test and then it's, okay, well, they've kind of, Physically they have the capacity to get to the end. So that's pretty much all it tells us. So it's more of a safety thing that, you know, they're not going to break down halfway or run into real physical problems. Um, but then I was sort of okay, well, this is much more of a mental thing. And I sort of got intrigued into the mental side of things and then coaching a lot of the tactical skills. Uh, and that sort of led me into first into the masters of research where I was looking at how, you know, integrating that sort of cognitive and physical approach impacts the way people perform on aerobic tests, which is what we're using sort of uh, outcome measure for that. Uh, and then the PhD led into more around kind of the tactical side of it, how we develop guys so that they can perform skills to or maximize their transfer from training in sort of a lot of the ranges, a lot of these things we do into actual real life combat scenarios. Because uh, obviously the pressure goes up fast from sort of the training into real life. Uh, so it's looking at what is the impact of this sort of increased pressure or increased anxiety, you know, through these fears that you encounter within a real environment, how they impact the execution of your skills and then what we can do to mitigate that sort of impact. Cause the, the early work I've done shows that um, there's quite a significant reduction in your skills when you go into like, or into a higher perceived pressure training environment. And then when you make the next jump into a real life environment, it, there's a significant decrease again. So the transfer at this stage doesn't look like it's that great So yeah. sort of trying to work that out and then look at okay well you know what are the interventions to try and increase that transfer
0: nice so i know like from my own reading that obviously with guys being put into greater and very stressful situations obviously that adrenaline dump there causes a lot of small motor skills to go out the window you know and uh, a bit more clumsy around that but what about uh, the cognitive side of things as well? What What's some of the, the issues we can see around that when guys have that anxiety, that stress, just skyrocket through? Yeah, so most of it
1: appears to be cognitive. Um, so a lot of the research I've looked at so far, and I'm, and I'm not that deep into it at the moment, so I'm still sort of uh, getting an understanding of some of it. But it doesn't appear as though it's a motor skill execution thing as much as what sort of has been speculated previously. So... It kind of looks like it's more around your working capacity that you have. So everyone has a finite working capacity. So you sort of look at, you know, um, like a comparison is if you sort of talk about RAM on a computer as compared to the hard drive. So, you know, you think about RAM as your working capacity is that once that's full, it's full, but you can't actually do any more tasks. And much like a computer, you freeze up as well. Um, So I think so when you're under perceived pressure and it could be anything. So this is kind of where it gets intriguing is that depending on, and a lot of the studies we use different variations in the pressure or the threat that they're using to increase this anxiety. Um, so, you know, it might be threat around uh, promotional. Um, oh, I can't think of the word I'm trying to use there or assessment. sort of thing, or it might be an actual physical pain threat. So like someone returning fire with marking rounds or they've used electric shock, these sort of things. So, um, but they'll use different threats as the perception and the perception kind of is different in each of those but the impact seems to be fairly stable as to how that works so a lot of the times is once you find yourself under a threat and your anxiety goes up and that takes up a lot of this um, sort of working capacity that you have and you start to focus more so on the threats within your environment and you're taking in less of the vital information you need to conduct your skills. so you know if you're talking about marksmanship and these sort of things it reduces a lot of quiet eye period at that final phase where you're trying to execute an accurate shot so you're actually focusing less on the conduct of that skill through quiet eye and taking in all the information you need to calibrate for that shot
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that's why these skills are get sort of being performed poorly um, sort of things so that kind of makes sense to you sort of thing and then it's really hard for them to shift from these threatening cues within the environment to look for the information they need. Uh, And then there's sort of some other things going on around as the threat intensity increases, you're sort of kind of in a freeze-like state where you're trying to assess what your options are, but it's mostly looking for an opportunity to go into flight, so you're trying to avoid something. Uh, And in a lot of cases where you see someone's response to a threat, it's more of an avoidance avoidance action to try and avoid uh, pain or avoid um, sort of fatal injury, these sort of things. So they're going into an action like that. So they're conducting a lot of these actions out of a fear state or an avoidance state. So that's where you're getting a lot of these suboptimal executions of those motor skills. Um, and it's very similar in most environments. So if you look into sport sort of thing, and you'll see in high-pressure situations that sort of kick at goal goes wrong or that final pass goes wrong or these sort of things is because a lot of the times they're focusing on the wrong information and not picking up the information they need to execute those tasks. Um, So like a soccer penalty, the research they've done there, has shown that they're looking more so at the goalie and the areas around there as to what he's doing rather than looking at the actual area on the goal where they want to strike, looking at the ball they want to strike. So that last period where they're looking at the ball where they want to strike it, that period of time is reduced so there's less time for them to calibrate that actual sort of motor skill connection with the ball and that's why a lot of times i miss because they're just not getting as much of the vital information they
0: need okay so i mean with regards to that then looking at some of these issues what would your recommendations be like trying to work backwards from this and how can people start to set up their own training wherever that may be if it's marksmanship if it's uh, more in the sporting context um, you know, how can they set up their training to be better around the stress inoculation and to cope with those demands all the better?
1: Yeah, a lot of it seems to be around, and this is kind of, um, I'll research this more as I go, but the sort of premise of it will be is that you just need to get in these early exposures. So like even your initial motor skill learning phase, if you can couple that with a stress or with a perceived stress, then you're building that skill in combination with a stress inoculation sort of thing. So you're teaching them, almost at the same time, how to f- maintain focus on the information that they need. Um, so then because you, if you've got an appropriate threat, then they're comfortable with that. So it's a, a lower intensity of threat for them. And then as that skill develops and their capacity to handle these threats increases, then you can increase the threat with it. So you know, early on, the threat might not be much at all sort of thing. And, and everyone's sort of a little bit different. So it comes down to a lot of the art of coaching type of thing as well. Yeah. Um, But then as they progress, then you start to introduce threats. But you want to try and make them as environmentally relevant as you can. So, you know, trying to get someone to do a maths test really quickly in sort of a tactical environment is not going to work because it's a completely different stressor, these sort of things. So, you know, you see a lot of work where guys will try and put people under pressure, but it's not contextually relevant. So you're almost training, you know, a completely different process where if you can train them with sort of something that's contextually relevant within an environment then they also increase their kind of pattern recognition for what they're looking for in that environment so you know a lot of times when we go into an environment we're looking for cues or patterns so that we can start to understand what's in front of us so then we can start to make predictions about you know what we're capable of doing how much energy it's really going to cost us to solve this problem Mm -hmm. and what we have from experience as far as tools to solve that problem so you know if we're We know we're capable of solving you know reasonably complex problems or patterns that we're familiar with in these high consequence environments from previous experience then there's less threat intensity because we've been through it before and we understand a lot of what we're seeing so we know the solution straight away and you can sort of get on with action where if you go in and you haven't seen any of this like you've only been prepared on a static range then you know there's no contextually relevant cues on a range that you're going to see with an environment so you know that's where the transfer gets really low and they're just not used to that level of threat so the threat intensity goes right up and so then you start to get really high levels of sort of fear you know and then you're going to get avoidance behaviors they just focus on the threat they can't shift their focus to the information they need um, their awareness or they lose all their sort of Awareness of their surroundings, you know, like communication, these sort of things are just not taking any of that. It's coming in. It's just not being filtered. Mm -hmm. um, So, you know, it's all through preparation. So I'm uh, really big on, even for kids, you know, if you can expose your kids to reasonable stress or or probably less guarding them from the stresses of life because there's enough stress as you're growing up, enough sort of um, scenarios and situations where, you know, you can learn that. I don't think you deliberately need to go and find your kids and take them into the woods for a day to see how they respond. You know, life throws enough at you, Um, but it's more so just sort of letting them solve these problems. And then, you know, as you go into a training environment, just looking, okay, well, what are the stresses we're going to see with this environment? Where are these guys at? Okay. What's the progression from where we're at to where we need to get them to. Mm -hmm. And then it's sort of very much the same as physical training. You just progressive overload in their stress and just see how they respond.
0: That's really interesting. There, and you talk about like uh, things being contextually relevant to that skill set as well. Um, I think I agree with you completely on that. I tend to see people either throw in skills that aren't relevant to the task at hand, or the training process is rapidly accelerated, so it takes someone from being, you know, new into a skill, and then throw everything at them, and it's just overload completely. Yeah. Um, from your perspective then, your background, that Dan, sticking with say like the marksmanship side of things how would you like set up a training program to inoculate someone to that stress response so saying say someone's brand new in and all they've ever done is shoot paper targets on the range you know very static environment how would you get them ready for you know moving up that that pathway to going live with a team you know moving through like cqb um scenario or something like that
1: yeah uh to be honest i can't go into too much depth on a lot of it um yeah, just because the environment I'm dealing in is kind of, um, like, I can't view too much of it anyway sort of thing. So, like, there's there's, there's some requirements within that environment. Um, but it's kind of using, as I say, implementing the appropriate stresses early sort of thing. So, they're envi- similar things that they're going to see within their environment type of thing. So, introducing that early. Um, and then, yeah, just making sure that they are responding. So um like there's kind of a reluctance for people to put themselves under pressure or under stress because most people see that as a negative thing Mm. um where when you look at the stress response or the threat response and everything that goes on with it it's actually a positive thing so we actually learn better when we're under a little bit of uh threat response just sort of pressure increases our learning just through a lot of the um internal mechanisms or biological changes that go on Uh, so it's giving them that but then it's making sure you've got the time for recovery um, that's where the issue comes. If you don't give someone time to recover, then they're under constant pressure. And that's when you start to get these ne- negative impacts. So it's kind of looking at making sure exactly like you're saying that you're not bombarding them so that they're, they're sort of, they are overloaded with it because if you overload someone too much and you sort of start to get into this learned helplessness, these sort of things where, you know, the learning stops and you are just almost reinforcing a fear at some point. So it's kind of it would be, an early and progressive exposure with it sort of just working on close to the edge of their ability, keeping them challenged, but not going too far. Um, you know, And much like the weights room or doing sort of energy system stuff, but like it's different for everyone. So it's, you know, you can't give a specific point. You kind of got to look at everything you've got and try and understand, you know, whether you're underdoing or whether you're overdoing or whether it's just the right amount. So,
0: okay, cool. no i um, Now. I know, like from some of the stuff I've seen you putting out there on like YouTube and online, that uh, Comanche Group comes up a, a fair bit. Is that your company uh, you're involved with, um, and how did that come about for you?
1: Yeah, so that's kind of just something I started up. So I was looking at um, a way I could get this information out, sort of thing. So obviously on the other side of the PhD, I've got to be able to pay my bills, yeah. sort of then keep the electricity on. Um, so I was looking at, okay, well what do I want to do on the other side of this sort of thing? So uh, I sort of, at the moment, it's just more of a framework where I'm just sort of getting a bit of information out, uh, doing a little bit of consulting work through it. Um, cause executives are quite interested in this stuff as well, because they're under a lot of pressure. Um, you know, even though it's not contextually the same, it's still relevant, like they're still under a lot of pressure and they're making some of them are making multi-million dollar decisions or tens hundreds of million dollar decisions sort of thing. So, um, you know, they're quite interested in how they can optimise their cognitive function, their performance, these sort of things, making sure they're recovering. And then they're not sort of making these emotional or avoidance decisions, these sort of things. Um, so i do a little bit there, um, play around with a little bit of, or a few sports teams here as well, kind of on the side. Uh, and then I'll sort of, over the next couple of years, I'll kind of find where I want to go with the direction of that company. So I think whether it is going into consulting, these sort of things. Um, and then you know, I've still got an interest in kind of helping develop Young men, um, you know, there's a lot of work I think to, that needs to be done around teenage boys, helping them transition from sort of adults, or sorry, from teenagers into adults um, and helping them with sort of positive behaviours and those sort of things. I think, um, you know, good positive role models are quite important. So I'm looking at, you know, whether there's capacity to build something like that into it. Um, so at the moment, yeah, it's kind of just something I'm playing around with while I'm in my PhD.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, sort of my time's committed to other things, and I just sort of got it there boiling away uh, and at the moment, it's more of just an information point to get some stuff out, and a little bit of side work.
0: Okay, uh, I mean it's it's interesting you mentioned there about uh, some of the work potentially with teenagers there as well. I know with everything that's going on globally at the moment, say one of the hardest hit groups is individuals from I think it's 15 up to about 23, 24, who are just yep. struggling with you know mental resilience around everything that's going on and like the, the isolation factors and that as well. So what's some of the stuff you're thinking about to throw it in there for some of the teenagers and helping them develop, you know, those mental skills?
1: Yeah, to be honest, I'm still sort of looking... um, Because it comes up a lot in a lot of the research I'm doing. Like, background seems to be really important. Um, And the big indications are is that the reality is by the time you're a teenager, most of the work has either been done or it hasn't been done. Um, So it's kind of at that point, you're almost working hard to change their beliefs about who they are so a lot of times people have got these fixed beliefs um, you know and there's very a lot of common beliefs around sort of victimhood these sort of things um, and this is kind of not going into those populations where they've come from sort of um what vulnerable families these sort of things like that's completely outside of what i'm looking at um, but they'll sort of come up where you know they see that everything they're doing is impacted by external forces sort of thing. So you almost got to try and change their belief that they are in control of what they're doing um, and try and give them a head or a redirect them almost sort of thing. So, you know, looking at you know, what you can do around providing positive role models, these sort of things. Um, and for me, I'm kind of uncertain whether I have the capacity to do that anyway, because it's a fairly big time commitment Like to change these sort of things. Like it's constant exposure to them um or getting the right people in front of them these sort of things sort of things i was sort of at the moment just kind of trying to help out some of the organizations that are doing it and then looking at you know whether there's scope in the future to sort of start helping out in that space um so i've sort of looked at a few things around you know how hard would it be to sort of get you know like a coming of age thing where you kind of take the dad and the son out on like a five-day trek and you sort of you know, like that transition point rather than just, you know, you finish school, you're you're a man now, off you go, you know, start taking care of yourself. Um, You know, like what can you do to start to, you know, help build some of these relationships at home? Because at the end of the day, like the father's probably, you know, the most influential figure in a young man's life or in a boy's life. So, you know, not everyone has the luxury or has access to, you know, a a very good, uh, consistent male role model. Sort of thing. So looking at that, um, you know, a few things around there, sort of thing. But again, at the moment, it's kind of just looking at what can be done without kind of trying to commit too early, and then you know, to avoid making those
0: mistakes of getting too involved too fast. Yeah, yeah. No, that's some interesting points there around like that. development research that can be done around that area, mate. Um, Dan, I'm always interested, like when chatting to people about what they're involved with regards to their own CPD and developing that uh on that basis then can you give us a, a recommendation on like a, a favorite book an app or a website you've been using recently and you know how that's helped you yes
1: yeah, so i um i get through a lot of books actually sort of um mostly through audible these sort of things like research but i guess probably one of the best books i've read in a while was uh, the liberator which i think is felix sparks i think is his name uh it's an american world war ii officer who started off um Right at the start, so started off in the, um, the Italy landing, I think, in the southern part of the European campaign, then went all the way through, was involved in, I think it was the liberation of Auschwitz. Um, just like an incredible, I think it was like 550 days or something, or over 500 days, just involved in constant engagements with the Germans. Uh, lost his company at one point um, in the mountains in Italy, and then became the commanding officer, almost lost his whole battalion. Um, sort of thing like that. Was at one point there where he rescued some of his guys in front of a bunch of German machine gunners uh, and reportedly in the book they tracked down the machine gunners to find out why they didn't kill him and they said that they seen this officer jump off a tank run in and just start dragging guys out and they didn't think it was fair play to take a shot at him. I so mm-hmm. was sort of impressed by the fact that the American officer was looking after American guys and they were sort of thinking, you know, I wonder if our officer would do the same for us. Um, so they just kind of they didn't think it was right to shoot at him so they let him go. Uh, and then sort of survives all that, comes back to America and then took on the NRA in sort of his later years. I think it was his grandson, I think, got killed in a drive-by. So he took on the NRA, or NRA uh, in a big fight. So just, like, you read through this book and you just sort of look at the capacity that he had as a, a one person to do all that. You sort of, for me, I kind of look at that and that gives me a lot of context about, you know, like, if he did that, then maybe what I'm faced with isn't that difficult, you know what I mean? So for me, that was a really good book um so i kind of like those sort of books that's probably one of the better ones i've read in a while i just sort of couldn't put down once i started reading it
0: nice that sounds awesome but i'll definitely uh, look that up and i'll make sure put that in our show notes as well um going forward dan like if anyone uh listeners wants to reach out to you and that what's what's the best ways people can get in touch with you and find out a bit more about it uh,
1: yeah. yeah at the moment sort of uh instagram or linkedin are probably the two easiest ones to sort of get me on um, there is the Comanche website where you can direct email, sort of thing, so, um, you know, sort of still learning a, lot, a little bit around the social media, how to sort of be more efficient with it, um, but if someone reaches out on there, I'll sort of, i definitely do my best to get back to them, uh, answering questions, those sort of things, or sort of, uh, if I see a few themes in what people are asking, then I'll try and do a few posts or something around that, just based on, you know, my understanding of what I can find out, sort of thing. I think so, um, yeah, they're probably the best two sort of platforms to get me on.
0: Okay, cool. No worries, I'll make sure I'll link them in. Um, Dan, once again, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down and chat with me today. That's been just a wealth of knowledge there, covering everything from the physical side of training to obviously cognitive stress and how to manage that and you know, putting uh, plans to develop your, your capacity around that. So it's been a really good and uh, interesting chat with you, and I'm sure everyone listening has taken away a lot lot from this so thank you once
1: again yeah no it's actually a pleasure thanks for having me on um yeah and if anyone's got any questions i'm more than happy to help out um and like i said i'm still sort of learning a lot myself so i've probably got more questions now than i have answers um but yeah certainly exciting to learn and then happy to share as much as i can
0: Sweet, perfect done appreciate that mate well thank you mate and we'll speak to you soon okay
1: <laughs> fantastic thanks mate
0: yeah okay guys thank you so much for listening today If you enjoyed the content here, please check out our website at monarchhumanperformance.com and sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with future podcast episodes, articles and upcoming content, including trend programs and live and online workshops.